Welcome to today's episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about one of the most important and least understood problems with our broken democracy. We'll start out by learning what gerrymandering is and why what we're dealing with now is not the same as your grandfather's gerrymandering, which is basically innocent election hijinks by comparison. We'll hear about the case now in front of the Supreme Court that will have a profound impact on the future of who gets to draw the lines that determines elections going forward. Toward the end, we'll hear why this should not be a partisan issue and how moderate Democrats and Republicans, the vast majority of the country, by the way, should be in favor of gerrymandering reform, if we can get them to stay awake after hearing that term. And finally, stick around to the very end, where we will discuss an alternate legislative solution to completely negate the effects of gerrymandering and get our democracy back on the road to functionality, regardless of what the Supreme Court says. Our clips today come from On the Media... Amicus, the Trump cast, the Real News Network, the Zero Hour, and the organization Fair Vote. The two key words are cracking and packing. David Daly is author of a book on gerrymandering titled Rat Fucked. We spoke with him last October. So cracking is the idea that you take the other party's vote and you divide it up so that it can be as ineffective as possible amongst as many districts as possible. And packing would be to take them and and pack as many voters of one party as you can into as few seats as possible while taking the rest of the seats for yourself. Which was pretty much business as usual for two centuries with one party rigging the game in its favor whenever it got the chance, and the other party fighting to get it back. But according to Daly, that all changed after the Republicans were decimated in the 2008 election, and the art of gerrymandering became a science. If you watch the back on the live television of that night, it sounds like Republicans are mourning that they're going to be a minority party for a long time. But there were a handful of really smart Republican strategists who realized this doesn't have to be the case. 2010 is a census year, which means it's a redistricting year. And they set about a state-by-state strategy to flip state legislative chambers in such a way that when state and congressional districts were drawn the next year, they would have the only voices in the room, the only seats at the table. And they pull this off brilliantly. Now, if modern gerrymandering is, in fact, a perversion of the framers' intent, it's an equal opportunity perversion. Right now, the Republicans control 30-some state legislatures and therefore a disproportionate percentage of legislative districts in their shapes. But when the Democrats had the majority of state houses, they did approximately the same thing to give themselves safe seats, did they not? Gerrymandering over the years has certainly been a bipartisan game. Both sides have done it for a long, long time. However, the difference here really is the technology. What you have right now is a program called Maptitude. It is a, an extremely powerful program. It comes preloaded with all of the census data with all of the demographics and ethnicity and economic data you could possibly imagine. Then you can add on to that all of the public record data sets, voting records. You can add on to it a cloud's worth of consumer preferences, of magazine subscriptions, of zip code data, 
This wasn't the case in 2000. It wasn't the case in 1990. It certainly wasn't the case in 1810. A partisan mapmaker right now has so much information in front of them that they can draw lines that are essentially unbeatable for a decade. Looking at gerrymandered legislative districts, you know, can be kind of a parlor game or I don't know. It's like finding constellations. Oh, look, there's Sagittarius. Oh, look, it's Capricorn. Oh, look, it's the Michigan 14th. There's one in Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania's seventh in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. That is actually, it looks like Goofy kicking Donald Duck. I mean, it really, really does. And the only point that is essentially contiguous there is uh, Goofy's foot in Donald Duck's <laughs> rear end. And they are really funny. However, these district lines are the building blocks of democracy. And when they get as perverted and twisted as this, it leads to deeply undemocratic outcomes. In 2012, the Democrats got 1.4 million more votes than the Republicans and could not take control of the chamber. And when a gerrymander like this, for all intents and purposes, puts a chamber ostensibly intended to mirror popular opinion and the public will beyond control of the voters, that damages the levers of representative government. That is how elections are rigged. And that is the kind of rigged we ought to be talking about, not what Donald Trump is talking about. I have to read a lot about electoral politics and have seen, you know, an endless amount of truth squatting and breathless reporting of various campaign outrages. And I've seen a lot of speculation about the fate of the Senate and the House. And yet I have read vanishingly little about legislative districts and how they're drawn and how they influence the House of Representatives and how over a period of 20 years, uh, the GOP has stuck to its knitting and created these impregnable districts, leading to the question, have we as an institution, the media, done our job explaining the civics of this to the American public? No, we in the media have done a horrible job of explaining this. We still believe that gerrymandering is something that both sides do. We believe it is politics as usual. The game changed in 2010. Karl Rove went on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal in March of 2010, and he explained exactly what the Republican strategy was going to be. And yet the New York Times can write story after story about will the Democrats take back the House and not even mention the words redistricting or gerrymandering. Because of the way congressional districts are drawn, Republicans have a powerful structural advantage is the actual quote that the Times tends to use. And that to me is journalistic jujitsu. It's a sentence that's at once accurate and yet it completely conceals the truth. When we do not talk about how this got that way, we are not telling people the actual honest story, which I think is a frankly journalistic malpractice. You don't have to take sides. You don't have to have your thumb on the scale. But you can't pretend that the lines don't matter and who drew the lines matter. This is 
a big, big term, 2017, uh, if only because at least with respect to voting, this may be the most consequential term in decades. Am I overstating that? Well, I think on the question of partisan gerrymandering, this is the, the moment. Uh, that is uh, when party is being used to draw district lines and whether or not that is something the courts are going to police. The big case, Gilby Whitford coming up. On other cases, uh, including a case out of Ohio, and now we know the Texas redistricting cases are going back to the Supreme Court. Not clear if there'll be blockbuster in, in that area, but, but certainly on the question of partisan gerrymandering, everybody's watching this case. So why don't you walk us through Gilvey Whitford that's going to be heard on the first week of the term and help us understand what it means uh, that the court is going to dip into this question of partisan gerrymandering after a very long time of wanting nothing to do with it. Right. So it is um, one of these issues that has divided the justices for decades. The question is when, usually we're talking about state legislatures, draw district lines, either for uh, their own legislature, drawing their own lines, or drawing them for Congress, it's not unheard of for legislators to draw lines in self-interested ways, uh, not only to protect incumbents, but to give a particular party, the party in power, an advantage. It's happening more by Republicans than Democrats these days, I think for the simple reason that Republicans control more state governments than Democrats, but it's not only a Republican problem. And in fact, another case waiting in the wings comes from Maryland, and there's a claim of a partisan gerrymander there. So the question is, how much taking political consideration and drawing lines is too much? In the 1980s, in a case called Davis versus Bandemer, The Supreme Court said, yeah, we can hear these cases and here's a standard. And the standard proved to be so impossible to meet that there was never a successful partisan gerrymander uh, case brought in any court after that. Then back in 2004, the key case was called Veith versus Jubelerer. It arose out of Pennsylvania's districts. And there the court divided 414 which is an odd division, four justices led by Justice Scalia said, we don't have any standards to decide when taking party into account is too much in drawing district lines. These cases are non-justiciable. Courts can't hear them. They're kind of political questions. Four, the four liberal justices disagreed, said we can hear these cases, and they each set out a bunch of different standards based on bad intent or bad effect or a combination of the two. And Justice Kennedy stood in the middle, and Kennedy said, I agree with the liberals that courts should be open to hear these cases, but I agree with the conservatives that all the proposed standards so far are unmanageable. So, yeah, we'll hear your cases, but you're going to lose unless you come up with something else. And you can understand the last 13 years as a struggle to come up with something else that would satisfy Justice Kennedy and the Wisconsin case, Gilby Whitford, uh, challenging the uh, uh, districts in Wisconsin tries to come up with a new standard or a better standard that could satisfy Justice Kennedy and presumably the four more liberal justices to start policing this before Justice Kennedy might leave the court in uh, a retirement, as people expect, if not this year, coming up in the next few years. So, so stop for a minute, Rick, and just tell us, because uh, as you've suggested, this is happening all over, but the court in Gill is looking at this Wisconsin gerrymander. Can you just 
paint a picture of how that sorted out and why it certainly looks to the naked eye like a pretty partisan political gerrymander that we're talking about in Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin is one of those states. Uh, Another one is North Carolina, where we think of them as pretty evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans and people who lean with them. And so you'd expect to have, you know, roughly equal division of um, legislators or members of Congress, if we're talking about congressional resisting. But in fact, the way the legislative lines have been drawn, uh, the Democrats might get a majority of votes, but not get a majority of seats. And so that's a kind of asymmetry or kind of bias in the plan. Uh, in, in the North Carolina case, This is one of my favorite um, facts from the case. North Carolina was found to have been a racial gerrymander, and we can talk about that after. But to remedy that, they engaged in a new redistricting where they explicitly said on the record, we are engaging in a partisan gerrymander because they know that there's been no standard to police these. And they asked one of the legislative leaders, given that it's a 50-50 state, why did you draw 10 of your 13 congressional districts to favor Republicans? And the answer that this legislative leader gave was because we couldn't figure out how to draw an 11th. <laughs> and I think this is what if you give the people who are in power the chance to draw the lines, they're going to sometimes take advantage of it. And the question then is, uh, is there a standard to say this is too much and courts are going to come in and they're going to put some brakes on this? So, so here's where you get to explain. And really, I did caution listeners that you think you're glazing over, but this is critically important. We actually have a test, at least in uh, Gill, in the Wisconsin case, and it's called the efficiency gap. So so talk to us, Rick, as though we've maybe been asleep all summer about what that is meant to be measuring and whether the folks who think, hey, here is your workable standard, Justice Kennedy, whether this is something that really could be the silver bullet for the Supreme Court. Sure. So The efficiency gap is a measure of partisan bias in plans. It comes from, in redistricting plans, it comes from work that was done by uh, Eric McGee of the Public Policy Institute of California and Nick Stephanopoulos, who's a professor at the University of Chicago. And it's basically a way of measuring wasted votes. And what I mean by wasted vote or what they mean by wasted vote is uh, you know, it only takes uh, a plurality of votes uh, to win. You just have to get more than the other guy. If you stick a whole bunch of Democrats or Republicans or African-Americans or whoever into a district, if you pack them in, so there's a district, say, that's 75% Democratic, uh, you're wasting those votes. And so what they try to do, it, because you only need 51 out of 100, say, if we're taking a simple thing, and you put in 75%, uh, what the efficiency gap tries to do is measure whether a plan is biased towards one party or the other. Is it packing or cracking, dividing up what could have been a majority district helping whatever group is being cracked? Uh, is, is it wasting more votes of the party out of power than the party in power? Now, even the authors of the efficiency gap don't present this as the holy grail for Justice Kennedy. And the lower court, it was a three-judge court, uh, said the efficiency gap is something to consider, but it is, uh, you know, it is not the only thing they're hanging their head on. And so while much has been made of this measure, it is really one of a number of tests that have been put forward uh, in these cases to try to show that there is a manageable way to uh, figure this out. 
And I, I should point out one more thing, which is that what's happened since the 1980s and even since 2000 and uh, 2004, when the court decided beef, is that uh, computers have helped redistricting uh, and big data have helped redistricting uh, uh, authorities make more efficient gerrymanders. They're able to draw gerrymanders that last throughout the decade. So even as population shift, even as political winds change, they've proven to be pretty resilient. And there's a brief uh, from uh, professors Grofman and Gaddy, probably two top redistricting people in the country, who say, now is the time to start reining this in. And Gaddy was actually someone who's been involved in drawing Republican districts and gave some aid to the Wisconsin legislature when they were trying to figure things out early on in terms of how to draw the districts. And they're saying things have changed technologically, and maybe that's the reason now for the courts to get involved. So in addition to the Election Integrity Commission, I know you wrote recently about the census. Uh, we're about to take a census in a couple of years, 2020, um, and this is a major deal for um, determining representation in Congress or in the House of Representatives for formulas involving um, resources and so on and so forth. And you are trying to, uh, from what I can see, sound the alarm about how the census uh, is going, um, how the preparations for the census are are inadequate at this point. And you wrote a really interesting piece about the man President Trump has chosen to head up efforts for the census, uh, arguing that he is kind of another figure in this world of voter suppression and gerrymandering and so on and so forth. So could you, we have a little time left. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, uh, about, about the census and this uh, this guy? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm extremely concerned that the Trump administration is using the census, which is constitutionally mandated to accurately count every person in America, as a vehicle for their war on voting, which is just an unbelievable misuse of a constitutionally mandated task. And if you look at the guy that they are close to appointing, he has not yet been appointed, but everyone says he's going to be appointed. They are choosing a guy by the name of Thomas Brunel, who's a professor of political science at the University of Texas at Dallas, to be the deputy director of the Census Bureau and basically the de facto head of the 2020 census. And the census is usually run by nonpartisan people, career people that have a long history working in government. But this guy, Thomas Brunel, has no history working in government. And even more disturbingly, he is an expert in Republican gerrymandering, meaning he has been hired by Republicans that defend uh, gerrymandered maps in more than a dozen states, including states like North Carolina and Alabama and Virginia, where those maps were struck down by federal courts as racial gerrymandering. And this is so disturbing to me because the census forms the basis for redistricting. So you need an accurate census so you can have an accurate apportionment of seats. But here you have a guy that's an expert at manipulating 
manipulating the census and an expert at manipulating the drawing of districts to favor Republicans, which is such a conflict of interest in terms of how the census is supposed to work. He's also someone who has written a book uh, arguing that competitive elections are bad for America, uh, which is uh, quite a controversial opinion. He basically That's an extremely wants controversial ultra, ultra, opinion. An extremely controversial opinion, especially because what he's doing in all of these redistricting cases is basically arguing that Republicans should draw as many safe seats as possible for themselves and as few safe seats as possible for Democrats to maximize Republican representation. Uh, but this guy is supposed to be in charge of a task of accurately counting every American. This is something that's supposed to be addressed from a scientific, apolitical perspective. And, and now they're basically trying to bring in one of their lead gerrymandering experts in the Republican Party to run the census, which is just an unbelievable and dramatic departure from how any previous administration ran the census. You had Republican administrations, Democratic administrations. Yeah, they had slightly different people in there, but they both were committed to an accurate and nonpartisan census, and I don't see that happening at all. You also had the fact that the Department of Justice has written to the Census Bureau and asked them to add a question on citizenship. So right now the census doesn't ask if you're a U.S. citizen or not, because they're supposed to count everyone in America, citizens or not. The Justice Department wants to ask if people are citizens, which in this climate where so many people are afraid of being deported, that could be a disaster. That could massively depress uh, immigrant responses, which would mean two things. Number one, there are fewer immigrant responses, so areas with a lot of immigrants, like New York and California, get fewer resources. The second thing they could do is they could say, well, if we have that data on citizenship, we can draw districts just based on citizens, not based on total population, which Republicans tried to do last year, lost a huge Supreme Court case about this in 2016, but now they're trying again. So I think this is a very, very, very devious way to try to undermine democracy. And I think they're using the census as one of their vehicles for undermining democracies, which, which I find to be very disturbing. I think we have to sound the alarm now because the census is going to begin on April 2020, but the preparations are, are starting now to do it. And if they get it wrong right now, there's no way they'll be able to do it accurately when it actually begins in April 2020. And more broadly, what you seem to be describing is even if this Election Integrity Commission is gone, even if um, Kobach has a, a somewhat less visible role in the administration, it is the case that voter suppression efforts of reducing uh, the representation of Democratic voting constituencies are kind of ongoing in this administration. Yeah. I, th I think that's absolutely the case. I think you know, even if there was no more election and integrity commission, even if Donald Trump suddenly stopped claiming that millions of people voted illegally, we would still see Republican efforts at the state level uh, to make it harder to vote. We would still see the Trump administration uh, trying to sabotage the census uh, and, and other things that promote democracy. We would still see the Trump Justice Department be hostile to voting rights. So this fight over voter suppression is far from over. We are coming to the end of our two-in-one winter fundraiser, so if you've been planning on stepping up and contributing but haven't yet, now is the time. This is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. So a quick thanks to some professional protester members who've either signed up new recently or made the jump over to Patreon. Thanks to Michael R., William T., Elizabeth F., Karen G., Ross M., Dusty, and Chris. 
Christian. Uh, when you support both of these good causes, you can get free 100% recycled Best of Left apparel as a thank you gift. That is only available when we do these fundraisers. You can't even buy them most of the time. Climate Ride helps support the fundraising efforts of NGOs fighting against climate change, and becoming a member helps ensure the financial health of the show, of course. Uh, Plus, members get all of the bonus content we put out where we try to dive a little deeper and get a little bit more philosophical. And the bonus episodes have been getting such a good response lately that, that nearly all of the incoming voicemails are about the members show instead of about the main show. So I, I at least hope that means we've struck a chord or two. To hear all of the bonus shows and judge them on the merits yourself, and for all of the details on getting your free Best of Left t-shirts and hoodies, just head over to bestofleft.com and click the huge winter fundraiser banner on the homepage, or there's a convenient link right in the show notes for this episode. Don't forget to get your donations in by the end of this month so we can wrap this campaign up on a big win and I can stop talking about it. Thanks in advance for your support. Welcome to Rattling the Bars. Today, I would like to take a look at prison jury mandering, a federal and local policy that affects millions of people. And I have here with me today to kind of explain this and look at it, uh, two guests, uh, Peter Wagner from the Prison Policy Initiative and Professor Khalil Muhammad. Uh, Thank you for joining me, Peter and Khalil. Glad to be here, Eddie. Thank you for having us. Uh, Peter, would you explain to us what prison gerrymandering is? Sure. So gerrymandering is is drawing legislative district lines in a way to control the outcome of the election. So what matters is not who the, the voters vote for, but how the lines are drawn. That controls how decisions are made. Well, prison-based gerrymandering is when elected officials use the presence of a prison to give more political influence to the communities that host the prisons and to dilute the votes of people who live in every other district in the state, particularly the communities of color where people who are in prison disproportionately come from. So it's a way to control the, our democracy in favor of prison expansion. Uh, does that also involve uh, tax incentives to those uh, districts uh, as a relationship to the number of uh, citizens that's counted in those districts? The good news is that formula funding is not affected because most government funding formulas are too smart to be fooled by the Census Bureau's prison miscount. But when you give elected officials who have prisons extra influence, they can use that then to change policy decisions, to write the criminal justice laws, to build more prisons, to do things that hurt urban communities. But it doesn't affect funding formulas, but does affect every political decision that the legislative branch makes. Okay. Um, uh, Khalil, uh, could you give us a little historical oversight on how this had been used uh uh, in the black community and in uh, America in general? Well, the census has always played a big part in uh, debates about the significance of minority populations relative to a majority white one. Uh, most people, of course, know this most famously in the Constitution with the three-fifths clause, which gave 
uh, increased power of a political representation to the southern states as a compromise at the start of the nation's founding. So the census has always been a political instrument, uh, gerrymandering even beyond uh, the question of how you count inmates in, uh, in, as parts of states where they are not uh, in their home residence uh, is very much still a part of our uh, local state and federal elections. So who gets to vote for whom is a critical feature of power and how it's expressed in America. Uh, with prison gerrymandering in particular, it's, it's really been explored as a kind of um, consequence of all of our attention to mass incarceration. And much of this work started with felony disenfranchisement laws, looking back to the Jim Crow period to understand how people uh, who had been criminalized and many of whom were incarcerated were stripped of their citizenship rights, the most sacrosanct being the right to vote. What we see now is really playing catch up to the impact of four decades of tremendous incarceration, uh, disproportionately affecting black and brown communities, where to add insult to injury, not only are people incarcerated not voting, those who have served time uh, and have essentially paid their debt to society also in too many instances not voting. But even when they're incarcerated, the home communities from which they come lose their political power to some degree relative to rural, overwhelmingly white communities. Peter, I notice only two states, uh, Maryland and New York, has outlawed the use of uh, debt residency status. Uh, what's the status on the other 48 states and what's being done about it? Well, as you said, New York and Maryland have passed legislation that counts incarcerated people at home for the purposes of their legislative districts. Two more states, Delaware and California, have passed legislation that'll do the same thing starting in 2021. And other states have proposed legislation, often it's passed in one chamber, but it hasn't passed um, anywhere else yet. And there's also been a national movement to solve this problem federally by convincing the Census Bureau that a prison is not a residence and the Census Bureau should count incarcerated people as residents of their home addresses where they legally still live and where they're gonna go back home after they're released. The sense, if the Census Bureau was to count incarcerated people at home, that would end prison gerrymandering nationwide in one fell swoop. Okay, and I, un I understand that there's been a number of organizations that have signed on to this, as well as hundreds of thousands of letters written in support of it. Uh, is, th is that going to have any impact on the 2020 census? I hope so. The Census Bureau rarely gets very many comments. I believe the record number of comments they ever got was 1,700. They got 100,000 people in the last two months have asked the Census Bureau to end prison gerrymandering. So I hope the Census Bureau is listening and understands that not only is prison gerrymandering something that a lot of people oppose, it's also something that 100,000 people have said is wrong. And if the Census Bureau values accuracy and fairness, this is a change that they need to make. Mm -hmm. Uh, Professor, Professor Muhammad, uh, this is an issue that touches uh, our community as well as communities of color and so on. Is what, what, if anything, should we be doing to kind of address this? Because as you kind of like pointed out, it's taken away our ability to exercise any political muscle. Well, the organizations, uh, as well as the individuals who've already written to the Census Bureau, need to stay focused on the issue as an important issue. 
And interestingly, we've all borne witness to the fact that the 2016 presidential election has lost, in some ways, its focus on the criminal justice system as a major topic of bipartisan reform. Uh, this is an issue that we can't afford to lose any steam. And organizations like Peter's are really critical in both producing data as well as advocacy around the issues. So organizations like the Legal Defense Fund and the Pennsylvania Prison Society, uh, as well as community organizations and black and brown activists uh, are focused on this issue, but they've got to mobilize bodies to do it. There ought to be people standing outside of the Census Bureau uh, raising uh, national attention to this issue because the damage is too significant and it's too hard to address when these things um, only come around every 10 years. Okay, once again, thank you for joining me. Uh, I hope you keep us updated uh, on this as the the letters and protests uh, goes to the Census Bureau so we can make a determination of what's going to happen in 2020 and how that might impact us. federal judges declared North Carolina's congressional districts to be unconstitutional last Tuesday. According to the judges, the district maps are drawn in an extremely partisan way, designed to give Republicans practically permanent advantage in races for the U.S. House of Representatives. Back in 2016, when the North Carolina legislature last redrew its district maps, Republican state lawmaker David Lewis reportedly even said, quote, I propose that we draw the maps to give the, a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats because I do not believe that it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. The judge's decision, written by Judge James Wynn Jr., cited a 1969 court decision saying, quote, on its most fundamental level, partisan gerrymandering violates the core principle of Republican government that, that voters should choose their representatives, not the other way around. Joining me now from Los Angeles to discuss the judge's decision is Dan Vicuña. Dan is the National Redistricting Manager for Common Cause, one of the main plaintiffs in this case. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. So give us, first of all, a brief summary of the decision. What exactly is unconstitutional about North Car uh, Carolina's congressional districts and why? Sure. Well, just a, a short bit of background. You know, the North Carolina legislature uh, first drew this drew a congressional map after the last census, after the 2010 census, and two of their congressional districts were struck down as an illegal racial gerrymander. The court said you've packed African American voters into just a couple of districts in a way that um, eliminates their ability to to affect the map, uh, to affect any other surrounding districts. And that was very intentional as a way of giving the Republicans an advantage in the state. Um, what the court then ordered them to do in 2016 uh, was to redraw redraw districts. And that's where the quote you mentioned came from. Um, the legislature said uh, very publicly, um, look, this is not going to be any kind of racial gerrymander. What we're going to do is draw these districts to ensure that Republicans maintain control of 10 of 13 seats in our congressional delegation, despite the fact that the state is basically evenly split between the parties. Um, and so common cause 
Um, and we were joined uh, by the North Carolina Democratic Party and some individual voters in the state. Um, we said that's got to be, you know, that is a clear case of uh, an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. So, so we sued um, on the grounds that this violated the, the First Amendment rights of those targeted voters because they were targeted because of their speech, because of their support for Democratic candidates. Um, we said this is an equal protection violation, you know, again, mistreating uh, Democratic voters um, uh, in an invidious manner. And a couple of other constitutional provisions related to the way that uh, the popular election of the House of Representatives members, you know, saying that you know, this goes far beyond the state's power um, to uh, to to regulate elections, the time, place, and manner of elections. This is actually dictating outcomes. Um, it also violates provision of the Constitution, and which states that the House of Representative members must be elected by the people. Um, basically, a lot of these members of Congress are being elected uh, by legislators. Um, these districts were predetermined, um, sort of in the in the drawing of districts. Um, so that was our constitutional challenge. Um, and uh, uh, several weeks after we filed our case, um, the League of Women Voters, um, represented by Southern Coalition for Social Justice and Campaign Legal Center, um, filed a separate lawsuit on slightly different grounds using some slightly different constitutional provisions. Um, fortunately, we really won on all counts. Um, the the three-judge panel, you know, again, represented by a, a, an Obama appointee, a George W. Bush appointee, and a Jimmy Carter appointee, um, unanimously, unanimously stated that this was a clear violation of fundamental constitutional rights um, of the public. Um, two of the judges um, agreed that this was both a First Amendment and uh, equal protection violation, um, along with those other um, popular election uh, provisions I mentioned. Um, the third, the D George W. Bush appointee, said that this was um, only a violation um, along uh, the related to those popular election Article One sections. But in the end, um, it was a, a sweeping victory. Um, you know, the, the way these cases work, they have sort of an unusual route um, through the court system. Uh, they go straight from a three-judge panel. North Carolina legislature has already stated that they will be appealing the decision, and this will go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, which we imagine a decision could, um, oral arguments could happen within a year. But in the meantime, uh, the trial court has ordered the North Carolina legislature to redraw districts. Um, and recognizing the likely possibility that this legislature, which has again and again violated the constitutional rights of North Carolinians, um, that they cannot do the job, is also going to hire its own map drawer um, to do um, some alter an alternative remedial map to make sure that the people of North Carolina get fair representation. So <clears throat> what is the larger significance, though, of this decision? It's not a Supreme Court decision, but do you expect uh, that it will have an impact beyond North Carolina and other states where gerrymandering is blatantly partisan? I do. I, I think this is part of a recognition, um, both among activists, um, all the way up to the judiciary, that you're not seeing your grandfather's gerrymanders anymore. This isn't a time when you know, maybe both parties got together and they were drawing on paper maps on the ground and making an educated guess as to how they could protect both parties' incumbents. This has become uh, something that can be done with incredible scientific precision, um, using big data, um, consumer information, and combining that with voter histories. You can fairly accurately predetermine the the drawing, who's going to win in a given district, basically for the entire decade. And so what we're seeing is that the judiciary is recognizing that you, you can't, certainly can't rely on self-interested politicians to do something about this. Um, you know, it, it's absurd to think that they're going to reform themselves. So 
they're starting to act. Um, this is the, you know, the, the Supreme Court has already stated in very recent cases that partisan gerrymanders are incompatible with democratic principles. They heard the Gil v. Whitford case in October, which we're waiting for a decision on. Um, in, in a surprise move, they agreed to hear a case, a Democratic gerrymander out of Maryland, which strongly suggests they may want to decide the Republican and Democratic gerrymanders together um, and finally set a standard, an outward bound, um, you know, for stating that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. And this North Carolina case is, you know, is a, a recognition uh, that I think, I think led by the Supreme Court's recent actions, a recognition by the judiciary that something's got to be done, that this is an assault on basic democratic rights, um, the likes of which we haven't seen before. And so if uh, the North Carolina case is somehow joined with these cases that the court um, is going to decide on shortly, um, or you know, it's decided shortly after, you know, we're very likely in 2018 to see significant action um, at the very highest levels of our court uh, to stem um, or, or partisan gerrymandering. So it's, it's a really exciting development. Um, and, um, you know, we look forward to, uh, you know, sort of again, providing fair representation to all Americans. recently on why Democrats should become the anti-gerrymandering party, which I thought was excellent. So I wanted to talk to you about that. Briefly, what was the thesis, What, in your own words, what that piece was telling us? Um, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, I've been covering politics for a very long time, uh, Richard, probably almost as long as you. And Longer. as I travel around the country, you know, I always have an ear open for the complaint. You know, the thing that that people care about, but maybe isn't the central issue on television or the central issue on radio or wherever else, the Internet, wherever people, you know, wherever the elites tend to define a conversation. I listen to what people are saying, you know, after you've given a speech or in the Q&A or kind of just in conversation. And now historically, nobody's liked gerrymandering, the process by which politicians uh, draw districts that they are essentially assured of winning, um, you know, grouping their partisan supporters uh, into specific areas and then isolating others in other areas. Um, Historically, people didn't like it, but it wasn't the first thing that came up uh, or even high on the list of priorities. In the last couple of years, I have heard more and more ardent objection to gerrymandering as people have become increasingly conscious that this process denies us not just competitive elections, but representative democracy. And when you combine the reality of gerrymandering with the reality of an electoral college, which can allow a loser in the popular vote to become president, with the reality of Voting Rights Act, uh, 
diminution and voter suppression with the reality of money in politics, you end up with a situation where an awfully lot of people are increasingly certain that the democracy deck is stacked against them. Mm -hmm. What I argue in this piece is that if I'm right, if this is something that people really are caring more and more about and that they're becoming more and more conscious, conscious of, the Democratic Party that does such a lousy job of identifying itself and identifying what it stands for might, for both practical and political purposes, sort of pull the brakes on a lot of the stuff it's doing and say, no, we ought to be the party of radical reform. We ought to be the party that says, if we are given power, we will make this country's democracy work. And uh, that's not to suggest that you would diminish any other position, push anything else aside. Of course, you're for health care and education and all the other good things. Of course, you don't like Donald Trump. But there's this sort of higher order uh, call to action, which I actually think the Democrats need at this point. So I wrote an article making that case. Well, you know, and here's why uh, I really loved what you had to say, John. First of all, you know, I've been sort of nibbling around the edges of this issue for a while. I wrote a piece back in November or December while Democrats are talking about Russians, the democracy, our democracy is being stolen by Republicans. And frankly, when it comes to gerrymandering, it's not just Republicans, although Republicans are the worst offenders. But I, I love your idea for a couple reasons. One is I think you're right. I think people intuit or, or, or know that the deck is stacked against them, to use your words. Two, I agree with you that Democrats need uh, an overarching theme, a kind of higher purpose that ties everything together, that tells people what they stand for, not just politically, but morally and ethically. And, you know, it's outrageous what's being done out there with gerrymandering. And to be fair, not just gerrymandering, but also voter suppression in various ways, voter ID laws, things like that. And I guess what concern the other reason why I think the Democrats should follow your advice on this is because I think, you know, you, you mentioned you write about Chris Kobach and uh, Donald Trump's quote unquote voter fraud commission that's going to pretend that a non-existent problem with people uh, voting dishonestly is a real problem so that they can suppress even more votes. I think that if the, if the Democrats don't make the case for what's really wrong with the system that people know is wrong, that that leaves an opening for the Republicans to fill that space with falsehood. Do you agree with that? Totally. In fact, I think this is the, the bottom line on all this stuff. Uh, when we talk about gerrymandering, the electoral college, money in politics, voter suppression, all of these things, when we put all these things together, of course we are concerned about these issues as individual concerns. You know, the problem of gerrymandering, the problem of voter suppression. But at the heart of it is this question of whether democracy will work, whether we can have a representative democracy. And if the answer to that question is no, if that can't be made real, then the prospect that our organizing, our energy, our, our uh, activism is going to transform this thing, is going to really provide the, the economic, social, 
uh, political answers for the 21st century is greatly diminished. It becomes much harder. And so we're not really talking merely about electoral structures or political processes here. We're talking about policy. We're talking about whether it's possible to do big, great things. And my argument is that for too long, the Democratic Party has compromised on that. They've said, well, we can win on the margins. We can win narrowly simply by saying we're not as bad as the other guys. And often that works. There's no doubt about it. But we're in a period right now where there are so many fundamental issues at play and where so many of them have gone unaddressed that people really are frustrated. And that frustration is going to take us in one of two directions toward deeper democracy, toward, you know, really creating a, a representative system where uh, the will of the people is reflected in our governance uh, situation where, of course, we get single payer Medicare for all health care because it's the only logical answer for the great mass of people. Of course, we have free education as far as you can go because it's the only logical answer for the great mass of people. Um, you know, but that's deep democracy. That's making the whole thing work and making it functional. The alternative is a, a much more authoritarian response, one that says, well, the people have some ideas, but they're just not possible. There really is no alternative to a neoliberal economics, a neoconservative uh, foreign policy, austerity for the many, uh, tax cuts for the few. And uh, I'm going to tell you, if that's where we end up, right, um, people are going to hate it. They hate that that circumstance, and they're always going to be looking for somebody with an answer, and you're going to get your Donald Trumps in there. You may also get a progressive response sometimes too, but you're never likely to get to a real solution. I argue that the road to a real solution is through deep democracy and that the Democrats, for both, again, moral and also practical reasons, is popular. Uh, ought to ought to buy into and go for deep democracy, take that chance. I don't know that they will, but I will tell you that uh, in my view, if they don't, they run the risk of facilitating their opposition. Well, you know, I agree with virtually everything you said, John Nichols. And again, John is the Washington correspondent for the nation. The one, uh, I think you were a bit too kind in saying that, you know, it does work from time to time for uh, Democrats to uh, reach out to swingable Republicans. It hasn't worked much lately. You know, it used to work, but uh, they've lost all three branches of the federal government, two-thirds of state houses, you know all that stuff, two-thirds of government governorships. So they do need something new, and I think this is a Thanks. chance, yeah. right? This is a chance to do it. I, I also wanted to add that uh, and get your thoughts on I, I, the irony here is that while it hasn't worked to appeal to reasonable Republicans on economic grounds, 
This is uh, from, and you understand far better than I what the poll numbers say here, but this strikes me as something that you could reach Republicans on, that they would respond to something that says, look, it's not fair whether Democrats or Republicans jury rig uh, uh, districts. It's just not the Democratic small D. It's not the American way to do things. I think you could get some Republicans to get behind that, don't you? I definitely do. And, and, you know, it's a very appealing argument to say, you know, look, the changes that we propose do not guarantee that we'll win every election. We want to abandon, we want to throw off the processes that allow the system to be gamed by one party or another, that sometimes have even allowed us to game the system. We want to get rid of that. We want to create a system where the Congress of the United States the legislatures of our states really are reflective of the popular will. And, and Richard, this can sound very idealistic and even somewhat esoteric, but let me give you a practical example of this. In 2012, Democrats won the overall vote for House of Representatives in the United States by 1.4 million votes. They had a 1.4 million vote victory in House races across the country, and yet Republicans ended up with essentially a 30-seat advantage in the House of Representatives. How do you get that? You get that because the process has been gamed, or maybe we'll throw aside the polite word gamed and simply say rigged. Yep. Oh, oh, I think that's absolutely right, and uh, I think... uh, Both parties should... Ultimately, both parties should dislike that because both parties have ended up on the bad end of that equation at different times. Right. You know, the flip side of that for Republicans, John, is that if you're a moderate Republican, it's such beings do exist, although we don't hear a lot about them. You should want this, too, because if you live in a jury-rigged, gerrymandered, safe Republican seat, your views no longer matter. You're being shouted out by the Tea Party Freedom Caucus types because they're the ones who are winning the primary. So if you're a reasonable Republican, I would argue this is good for you, too. Well, at the root of this article, of course, is, a, is an actual piece of legislation, a bill that was produced by uh, Congressman Don Byer from, uh, uh, from Virginia. And his proposal is for a, a, a radical restructuring of how we choose members of Congress. What would happen is that in small states, um, you would have all at-large elections, uh, run all the seats together in a multi-seat district in big states, say like a California, you'd have a number of these multi-seat districts, maybe five members in, in each of the multi-seat districts. Now, this could start to sound a little complicated, but it's actually not. It's how we choose school boards and city councils. And, and we do at large elections all over the place where you have a list of candidates, the ones who get the most votes prevail. But in, these, in this model of a multi-candidate district under the plan that buyers put forward, um, people would be able to rank their favorite candidates, one, two, three, four, five. Um, The candidates with the most votes would prevail, but using a model called ranked choice voting, uh, the candidates who get the least votes, uh, their votes are redistributed to your second, third choices. At the end of the day, what that means is that you can really produce a a Congress that, you know, you begin at this district level, uh, multi-seat district level, and then take it up to the federal where 
you have a real reflection of where people are at. It also does a couple of other things that are pretty interesting. One, uh, it pretty well guarantees that anywhere in the country you're going to have both parties winning, right? I mean, one party will, will have the advantage. But you won't have a situation like we currently have in some states where um, 30, 40 percent of the people may vote Democratic, but you don't have any Democratic representatives. You see that in a number of Western states. Um, but you also have an advantage for Republicans in a state like Massachusetts where 30, 40 percent of people vote Republican. You'd get some Republicans winning. And a final element of this, Richard, which I think is really important. Uh, there are cases where independents mm-hmm. and third-party candidates would have a much better chance of winning in this system. There are circumstances where women could win seats in areas that have never elected women or rarely elected them, where people of color could target their voting and win seats in areas where they have not won in the past. I mean, there's a lot can come of looking for models to open up our political process. And yes, as you suggest, moderates would be heard. I think there is a good chance that moderates can be heard, but also visionaries on the left right. and the right. Absolutely. On the left and the right will have a better chance of winning in this system. We've just heard clips today, starting with On the Media, speaking with David Daly about the fundamentals of gerrymandering and how new technology has supercharged its effects since 2010. Amicus spoke with Richard Hassan about the pending Supreme Court case that may decide if partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. Rattling the Bars on the Real News Network discussed the phenomenon of prison gerrymandering. The Trump cast talked about the upcoming 2020 census and the people Trump is putting in charge of running it. The Real News Network reported on the ruling that recently struck down North Carolina's gerrymandering scheme. And finally, we just heard John Nichols being interviewed on the Zero Hour about why Democrats should take up the mantle as the explicitly anti-gerrymandering party, but also why, at its core, this shouldn't be thought of as a partisan issue. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. Uh, But wait, there's more. We were going to put together an activism segment in support of the work of the organization Fair Vote today, uh, but then it turned out that they put out a great video that says everything we would have said about their one excellent solution to the problem of gerrymandering. So, as promised, here it is. Our democracy is fundamentally broken. We live in a dangerous era of fierce partisan divisions. Voters are trapped in a failing system in which it's nearly impossible to vote for change in Congress. The problem is that almost all of us are locked in districts that skew dramatically toward one party or the other. We have no power to affect outcomes or vote in competitive elections. A stunning 85% of seats in the House of Representatives are so safe for one party that fair vote can predict nearly every winner, two years in advance. Now it's worse than just gerrymandering or money in politics. The problem is our winner-take-all system. When just one person is elected to represent everyone in the district, partisanship and gridlock are rewarded rather than collaboration and innovation. We're left with a zero-sum game, and voters always lose. 
Winner take all elections have moved us to this place where we are completely ineffective. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are only concerned about their primary and they move further and further to the extreme. It doesn't have to be this way though. The Fair Representation Act has just been introduced to Congress to fundamentally change our elections for the better. The Fair Representation Act would make sure every vote counts. Everyone could vote in an election that matters. I'm sponsoring the Fair Representation Act because Congress is broken. It is hyper-partisan, it is far too polarized. The Fair Representation Act creates a structure where members of Congress are incentivized to work together. The Fair Representation Act is the most comprehensive approach to changing how we elect Congress in American history. Instead of districts that divide us into red and blue America, the plan would require districts that elect between three and five members. Congress would stay the same size, but districts would be a little bigger. Representatives would be elected using ranked choice voting, which gives voters the freedom to rank their candidates instead of picking just one. Ranked choice voting gives voters a stronger voice and reinvents our zero-sum politics. It would ensure that a majority of voters win a majority of seats, but everyone helps to elect their fair share in a district. Winner-take-all elections would be a thing of the past. Take two states like Oklahoma and Connecticut, for example, that both unfairly shut out voters from the minority party from being represented at all. About one in three voters in Oklahoma are Democrats, and almost half of Connecticut is Republicans. These voters are unfairly shut out from representation by district lines. Under the Fair Representation Act, all political parties would be fairly represented, and each state would have vigorous competition for the swing seats up for grabs. Voters would finally be able to elect ideological diversity within the parties. For instance, an Oklahoma Democrat or a Connecticut Republican. By using ranked choice voting, we can give Americans more choices and ensure that the entire electorate is represented, not just the ideological basis. For the first time in decades, Congress could actually function the way it was meant to. Our politics would open up to more voices, wider debate, and greater diversity. The Fair Representation Act would be a game changer for American politics. It would mean that everybody's vote counts. You don't have to live in a swing state or a swing district in order to have your vote count. Everybody's vote would count equally under the Fair Representation Act. And it would scramble the winner-take-all, zero-sum dynamics that are just tearing this country apart. It totally changes the incentives of politics. It will reduce polarization and partisanship and give every person an equal voice in our politics. The Fair Representation Act is a win for everyone. Republicans in blue states, Democrats in red states, people of color and women are all underrepresented in our current system. This act is the only way to give everyone leverage and influence, no matter where you live and regardless who draws the lines. This is the right thing to do to give voters the strong voice they deserve in our elections. Finally, democracy of, by, and for the people. If you want to fix our broken democracy, share this video, sign our petition, and contact your legislator today. So there we go. That is the Fair Representation Act. And if you want to call your representative about it, the bill number is HR 3057. And just to cap off today's episode, I want to mention that uh, during the research for, for today's show, I came ac across a description of gerrymandering that I thought was about right, uh, or more specifically, how people respond to gerrymandering. And the person said that it's the sort of issue that either makes your eyes glaze over or sets your hair on fire. And to be clear, 
my hair is thoroughly ablaze about gerrymandering, and I hope after today's episode, yours is too. I, I, I was appalled to find that I hadn't done a full show on gerrymandering, maybe ever, and, and I hadn't done a, a show that mentioned gerrymandering since like the election cycle of 2016. So uh, this was long overdue, but uh, we're getting to the point where changes may be on the horizon, and uh, it, it'll be for the better or the status quo. We'll, we'll see how things go. So keep the comments coming in. The number again, as always, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. And of course, supporting our winter fundraiser that is wrapping up at the end of this month. That all is, of course, how this program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofaleft.com. Best of a Left.